I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm joined today by none other than the world champion, multi-world champion, multi-Olympic <laughs> champion, Sir Chris Hoy. Sir Chris, very warm welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I apologise for the, uh, the, the sort of dress-down appearance. I thought it was an audio <laughs> podcast. I didn't realise. Apologies so, to no, I've, everybody at home. I've got a much worse body, so that's why I'm hiding it under a jacket. <laughs> um, now, before we go anywhere, I must tell you all about two amazing readers' events that we've got coming up at Motorsport Magazine. The first is on September the 10th, and that's with Nigel Mansell. And then on September the 20th, we've got one with Gordon Murray, two icons of the sport, an overused word, but not in this case. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about them, book tickets, which are selling very, very fast at the moment, then please go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash events. Now, Chris, we are uh, in one of your locals up in Cheshire, and uh, not only have we spotted the Cheshire housewives um, here for a meeting, we've also got someone trying to drill through the wall next to us. Yes. Um, so if there's any interruptions... What do you think would be more irritating out of the two, <laughs> well, if you had to say? <laughs> I Having only heard the drilling and not not the high spot, I'm going to go drilling for now. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> so now, obviously, we've got we've got lots of lots to cover. We've got some readers' questions. Um, want to talk about cycling uh, and also obviously motorsport, of which you're you're basically kind of busy every single weekend. You were just saying. Um, I think to start with, if I, I read somewhere that you were inspired by ET. Yes. Yes, I was. To go cycling. Um, yeah, I was, oh, I guess I was about six years of age, and it was just just before BMX was, was kind of hitting, you know, the shores in the UK. It, it was a phenomenon in the US at that point. And I watched the film E.T., and it wasn't the scene where, you know, they're flying off into the sky. It was the, the, the chase scene at the end where the kids are on BMX bikes, they're going over jumps, they're going around corners in a way that I'd never seen a bike used before. And I was just thought, I thought, this is amazing. I'd love to give it a go. So immediately asked my parents for a BMX bike. I think they thought it was going to be a passing fad. So, you know, they said, well, we'll get you a bike. Um, well, it'll be a BMX. And it clearly wasn't. They got it from uh, a jumbo sale for five pounds. My dad re-sprayed it black and he put BMX stickers, BMX handlebars on it. And to me, it was a BMX. And that was that was what got me started. And but you would, it's actually, I suppose, what some of the sort of motorsport listeners won't know about is that obviously you went into track cycling, but not until you had done quite a few years of BMX racing. Yes, that's right. I raced BMX from the age of seven till I was 14. And then I tried mountain biking, road racing, time trialing. Yeah, I was pretty much rubbish at all of those, all of those things. Um, and then found the track, and I wasn't that great initially, but I loved it. It was the speed, it was the... Um, the intensity of the competition. Um, there was a track in Edinburgh near where I lived, so I had the access to this facility. At the time, there were only two sort of international standard tracks in the UK, so I happened to live, you know, two or three miles from from one of those, which was just amazing luck. Because if the, the facility hadn't been there, I wouldn't have um, had the chance. And with the BMX racing, do you think, sort of looking back on that now, that gave you a founding kind of once you got into your track cycle, and you changed from you know the the kilometre sprint through to the Kieran? There's all the tactics. Did that have an influence? Do you think? Yeah, well, the, the, I think the best thing about BMX was that no matter how good you were at it, and I was I was good but not brilliant at it, you know, even if you were very very strong and very quick, you would you couldn't win all the time because there were too many variables. It's a bit like motorsport; um, you had to learn to lose at a young age. Where I, I, I've I've done that brilliantly well. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. To be fair, um, so yeah, it was just uh, you know I think that you. You, you couldn't get too carried away with it. Even the really quick guys, they, they, they would fall off, they would get knocked off, they would, you know, there was there was lots of variables. Eight guys going out of start and get into the first corner, all trying to, you know, to, to get, get the whole shot, get the lead. And, you know, inevitably crashes happen. So at the age of eight, nine, ten, you're learning that, you know, it doesn't always go your way, that you've got to bounce back, you've got to be resilient, you've got to give your best. And even if you do, you know, you, there's no guarantees. So 
I think it was a really good grounding, apart from the obvious, you know, bike handling and, and the, the actual physical side of things. I think mentally, it was a great start. Now, we've got a, a question here um, that sort of ties in quite nicely at the moment uh, from Will Donaldson about your early cycling at Meadowbank, um, which is an early, well, it's in sort of 1980s, early 1980s Commonwealth Games track. But yep. it wasn't in the best of condition. No, no, it was, well, they, they built the track for the 1970 Games and then they redid it for the 1986 Games. And at the time, they had the opportunity to put a roof on it. Um, and apparently, there was this local... Um, entrepreneur, businessman who had the money and, and was willing to pay for the roof to be put on it if they'd called the Belgium after him and the, the councillor said no way. So they left the roof off it in Edinburgh, you know, which obviously is not renowned for its glorious weather all the time. Um, and during the Commonwealth Games, it was rain, you know, literally, it was, I think it was called the, the Welly Drome. That was what they nicknamed it. It was raining all week and they only just got all the, the racing completed. Um, so we, we had, to, we inherited this amazing track. It was fantastic to have a, a velodrome in your home city, but it was just this common theme of you'd come down on a Tuesday night for track league and you'd get warmed up, you'd go up for the first race, a few spots of rain and then it would downpour for, you know, 10 minutes and the track would be wet for the next hour. You'd sit and wait for another hour. You'd just about get back out again, it would rain again. And it was it was incredibly frustrating, but um, but it was a great track. And, you know, that it's, you always remember, or I always remember that first feeling coming down the, the stairs under the tunnel and popping up in the track centre and just looking around at this incredible track and it was really intimidating all velodromes are the first time you go in when you're about to, to cycle on them super steep bankings the tv never gives it you know that kind of sense of how steep they are and yeah i just loved it it was one of these things a bit like motorsport that you try it once and you get hooked and, and you want to do it again and again i was going to ask because the I mean, we'll we'll talk more about cycling but your introduction to motorsport you know was very much your sort of cycling career finish and then you you went into the radical sr1 cup That's it, yeah. yeah um but you, you must have been very aware of motorsport long before your cycling career. Yes. Yeah, I was, well, I was a huge fan of Colin McRae. Obviously, being Scottish, you know, we didn't have many world champions back in the, in the 90s in any sport. Um, but I think watching Colin and his style of driving, his full commitment, his just this infectious um, personality that you, you were drawn towards watching and supporting him. Um, so, yeah, Colin, I have Colin to thank for, for my real kind of passion for motorsport. But even before then, you know, as a kid, I had a Skeletric set with the, the two 911 um, Le Mans cars with the lights that came on. And I remember asking my dad, you know, why do they have lights and the other cars don't? And he said, well, that's for Le Mans. It's a 24-hour race. They race through the night. And that was the first sort of spark of interest in Le Mans. So, yeah, I guess I've always been, you know, in Formula One as well. You can't avoid it. It's everywhere. And particularly in the 90s, it was 80s and 90s, it was, um, you know, big news all the time so yeah it's it's something I've always been a fan of and, and passionate about but never really even it wasn't even a, a dream to compete I just never thought it would be a possibility it was so far away from reality that I would why would I ever think I could get to compete you know on four wheels we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Le Mans in a bit but you mentioned there obviously looking up to Colin McRae with cycling it, it was kind of it was during your career the British cycling kind of just you know to, to those of us outside of it it kind of re-emerged um, and was at the forefront of everyone's mind and kind of young kids uh, who were growing up when you were at the Olympics, they had people to emulate and people to, to look up to and say, oh, I want to do that. But when you started, certainly in Scotland, there wasn't, there wasn't really that. So, you know, what what no. was it that kind of hooked you and got you into? Um, I, I, I think it was initially just the, the enjoyment of, of racing and, and riding on the track. It was a really fun thing to do. I mean, it had a really strong club and a great atmosphere, a good social side um, to the track racing scene because when you're at a race, you sort of turn up, you, you get your little seat in the track centre and then you do a race that lasts a few seconds or a few minutes, you come back down, you sit and chat, you're going up and down all, all day. So you spend a lot of time just sitting, talking and, and you make a really you know strong sort of you know social network from that. So I enjoyed that part of it. But there was never any possibility of making it as you know an international or even doing it full time winning medals was was just you know it, it was it was a pipe dream at that time um the biggest change or we always i had one person to really look up to one person that was achieving on the highest level without any support and that was graham o'brie who was this scottish sort of maverick rider who competed against chris boardman in the early 90s and chris had full factory support he had you know the, the the big sponsors he had peter keen who was this sports scientist who had all the new ideas revolutionary ways to to train 
And and Graham built his own bikes with, with his own two hands. He actually welded bits of scrap metal together. He got an old washing machine and took the bearing because his, his philosophy was, well, a washing machine spins at, you know, 1,200 RPM, so I'm only pedaling at 150 RPM, so these bearings must be really good. So I'm going to take these bearings out of this washing machine and use them in my bike. He, he looked at, you know, even things like how wide how wide he wanted his knees to be, how close he wanted to get them together to be as aero as possible. And this is all without wind tunnels and any kind of support. And he decided that he had to, so he had to build this special narrow bottom bracket and use this these bearings for it. He changed his whole riding position. He went into a skier's position, so he tucked his arms up instead of having the arms in front. Um, changed everything, came out, and he won the world title, broke the world record, beat Chris Boardman. The, the governing body were absolutely shocked by this, and they said, well, you know, they, we can't have an amateur coming out and breaking all these records. So they banned the position that he was riding in. So he went away and thought about it and came back with a second position that was known as the Superman position with his arms straight in front, and he broke the rec record again, became world champion again. Just an amazing, amazing guy. If you ever get a chance, there's a film called um, The Flying Scotsman, and Johnny Lee Miller plays Graham in, in the film, and it's... It's it's quite you know it's an amazing amazing film. It's very true to to the real story to his life. He's written a book about his life as well, his autobiography, um, and there's some sad bits in it too. He struggled with mental illness in his life and attempted suicide and all sorts. Um, but it's yeah, it's a really poignant story. And, and Graham's still going strong now, and he's still my hero. So um, yeah, Graham is is a, a, an amazing guy. So if anyone gets a chance to to do a bit more research about him, I would yeah, thoroughly recommend it. That is exactly what I'm going to be doing after this, actually. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? There's, there's kind of parallels with motorsport and cycling. You know, it's the underdog story that mm. people love, and, and ingenuity does get you sort of to the front. Um, I, do really, I really want to talk about the kind of the British team's mentality and how you found sort of tenths of seconds in a bit. Um, but am I right in thinking you also, you, you were almost a professional rower? Um, no, I, well, so you on the junior? Do you on the junior yeah, team, I, which I, is a I lot loved, further than I've ever. <laughs> I love drawing. Um, yeah, I did it at school. I got I represented Scotland at the junior level at the home the home countries. I'd, I'll say that's almost professional <laughs> well, from, from yeah. my perspective. It was, uh, you know, I I, I love drawing and I, I do miss it actually. And I got a chance to go rowing with Steve Redgrave um, a couple of years ago. I did a documentary about various sportsmen and women who were very successful, and I was interviewing them and asking them about what made them champions. And I got to go out in a pair with Steve Redgrave on the canal in Edinburgh, where I used to row from my old boat club, and that was yeah, that was a dream come true. Mm. Now, you're kind of what, once you, you you were sort of fully professional, a track cyclist. When you were saying that you never, in your wildest dreams, could imagine, you know, winning Olympic medals, being world champion eleven times. When did the penny drop? Was it the first medal, or <laughs> was it the first gold? Or? Yeah, I I think it was. There was a couple of moments really. For, well, first of all, to make it happen, you had to have the support. We didn't have any support. We didn't have any financial backing. The velodrome being built in Manchester was, was crucial because it was an indoor track, so you could train 12 months of the year. Up until that point, you couldn't train you know, in the winter not, months. Not at Meadowbank. Exactly. <laughs> so we had this facility, and that was great, but then we didn't have the money to rent it out. So British Cycling had two full-time members of staff, and that was it. At the rest of the time, you know, they would have, I think they had two weekends a month that they could afford to rent the velodrome. So we had this facility, but we couldn't use it. So there were cat shows, there were Tory party conferences, there were cheerleading competitions, all sorts of stuff happening in the track centre, but we couldn't afford to rent the track out to use it. So I was at university in St Andrews, I was coming down twice a month to train for sort of three days in a row, and the rest of the time just training on indoor trainers or out on the road. And, you know, there's no way you can compete against the, the top guys in the world doing, doing it that way. Um, but it was, it was in 1997, end of 97, beginning of 98, the National Lottery started. And the Lottery Fund was, was created for, for sport and for good causes. So it meant that we were given this, uh, very fortunate to receive this grant, you know, an annual grant. I got £10,000, which meant I could pay my rent, I could pay for travel up and down to Manchester. I could pay for food, and it was it was a lifeline. It was like a million pounds. It was like this this you know this opportunity to go professional. So I left university when I graduated in '99. Went full time on the bike, thinking it might happen for a year or two. And I guess it was in 2000 I got to the Olympics as part of the team sprint. And it was when I saw my teammate Jason Queeley win the gold in the kilo. That was the point when I suddenly thought, well, he's just Jason. He's just my teammate. He's, he's a normal guy. He's got two arms, two legs. He's not some sort of superhuman um, who I, I kind of maybe put the Olympic champions up on a pedestal before that point and realized that, you know, it's possible. And I didn't think I was the same level as Jason, but I thought, well, if he can do it, <clears throat> maybe potentially in a few years' time, I could be close to that. And to have you, the Olympic champion in your team 
to train with every day to help sort of drag you up to that level, um, that was a huge opportunity. Just fast forwarding to the 2004 Olympics in Athens and the sea level kilo. So the, the kilo for, um, you know, for, for readers who don't know or listeners who don't know is basically the kilometre. That's right, yeah, yeah. 1,000 metres against the clock. You're not racing, you know, just one rider. It's a time trial, one, one race. There's no heats, no qualifying. So you turn up and it's just everything in, in over four laps and it's the most painful thing you can possibly do. I mean, it's only a minute, but the, the pain that you can put yourself through in those last 20 seconds, it's indescribable. So yeah, it's a, it's a the race of truth. You know, there, there's, no, there's no hiding, there's no tactics, there's no room for interpretation. It's just all out for one minute. And but that that particular one, you were uh, didn't you didn't you get injured two weeks before? Um, and so you yeah. were, you went last. Yeah, I was last. It was reverse reverse order in seeding. So I'd won the world championships um, the year before, and it basically yeah you you kind of sit uh, sit there and watch your competitors post their times, and yeah about seven days before I got I, I crashed in the village on the bike. My last sort of ride. I just finished a training session on the indoor bike. I'd gone out for a little cool down ride around the village, came up to a roundabout, and there was this bus driver coming towards the roundabout. I had right away, but he just kept coming, and I had to sort of try and get through in front of him because I thought he's going to hit me, and I went too fast around the roundabout, hot tarmac in, in Athens, slid out and had a bit of a tumble. Thankfully, it was just road rash and you know nothing too serious, but it was one of those moments you think, God, you know, you could have easily broken a wrist or a collarbone, and that would have been the, the game's over. So... I was very lucky there. On the night itself, it was just, yeah, one of these one of these things you look back on now, and it's it's great with hindsight. But at the time, it was it was terrifying because um, four riders to go. The Australian rider Shane Kelly, he broke the world records. Had to stand there and watch him break the world record, go faster than any anyone had ever gone before. The next guy, uh, Stefan Nimka from Germany, did it again. And then right before I went to the start line, um, the Frenchman Arnaud Tourneau, my big rival. He went under 61 seconds um, for the first time ever. And it was just this feeling of right now, a personal best will only get me fourth place. You know, this is, you know, and, and if you start dwelling on that and thinking about it too much, you, you're kind of like a rabbit in the headlights. So it was just about focusing on the process of what I had to do to get the best ride from myself, not worry about the times. I had no control over that at all um, and really just block everything out. You know, you focus on, on exactly what you wanted to do to get the best result and, and thankfully, it worked out. And, but you, you broke you broke the world record pretty much on every lap. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because you're not you're not pacing it. It's not like in, in longer events, the coach would stand at the side and would give you feedback on how fast you're going, and you ride to a schedule. Um, but because it's essentially a sprint, you're just kind of going all out. But every split, every time you come round at the end of each lap for the four laps, you get the split that goes up on the screen, and you don't see that, but you can hear the crowd respond to what's happening on the. So. Yeah, I kind of, at the end of the first lap, there's a huge roar. Um, and I remember thinking, there's only two things actually I can remember from the race. I remember thinking, that's brilliant, I must be up. And then the second thought that popped into my head was, wait a minute. Maybe they're French supporters. Well, exactly. Because <laughs> I was in Stuttgart two years before, and at every split there was a huge roar. And I crossed the line, massive roar, looked up at the scoreboard, and I was fourth. And it was because I was down on the Germans' time. They were cheering for the Germans. So I remember thinking, they might not be cheering for you. <laughs> just keep going um, and then the rest is a bit of a blur really I watched, I've watched the video so many times over the years that your memory becomes the video you know you start to lose that first person perspective um, and you just remember what the video and, and the commentary I could give you the commentary back from Hugh Porter word for word virtually um, <laughs> but it's yeah it's funny I mean that's what 15 years ago now so um, yeah almost a lifetime ago in, t in many ways to what's, what's happened since then but yeah so how do, how do you train for something that lasts for a minute you know that is kind of full power yeah so i, was, I, I can't remember there was a tv program i'm sure where you basically you got onto a bike and they wanted to see what your max wattage was mm -hmm. and you'd literally like a few strokes the leg mm -hmm. and and that was it mm -hmm. and the wattage was was off the chart so basically what you would do if you got like any event you're training for you would assess the the kind of energy systems that you're using in, within your body so because i'm not doing you know the Tour de France or long distance stuff I don't need to have that aerobic efficiency I need to have the ability to produce as much energy in as short a space of time as possible so within that minute you need to have the, the power and the strength to get the bike off the line to accelerate up to speed you've got one gear and it's a, a big old gear so you need to have a lot of torque to get that that bike going so you do a lot of strength work maximal strength work really explosive power 
you need to have the ability to hit high peak power, which is, you know, obviously different to torque. So you train for maybe sort of doing five to 10 second efforts that produce a lot of power in a very short space of time. And then you have to have the ability to hang on to the, the speed once the fatigue sets in. So after about 20 seconds, the lactic acid in your muscle starts to build up and up and up. And then within the last, probably the last 15 or 20 seconds, the last lap and a half, your body is, it's, it's like it's drowning in lactic acid. You're kind of gone beyond this point where you can, I mean, it's the, the pain is hard to explain. And, you, you know, if you actually look at the power trace, you're, you hit peak power after about three or four seconds, and then the power just continuously comes down and down and down. Even though the, the speed is actually relatively consistent, uh, relatively constant, this, the power comes down and down and down. So at the end, you're probably crossing the line at doing about 300 watts and you're peaking at about 2,500 watts. So you, it's this fatigue gradient, which, you know, it's... And if you do it more efficiently, if you did a kind of flatter curve, you would never get up to a high enough peak speed. So you have to... You, you front load it. You put so much effort into that first lap and then hang on, and it's it's grim. It's it's one of the hardest things, you know, trying to explain how sore it is. And, and you, I guess you think, well, but you're professional. You train for that. You know, you should be fit enough that you can deal with that. But the more power you can produce, the more pain it causes so it's almost like the fitter you get the harder you can push yourself so but it's um yeah the the, the training we would do to, to sort of create the lactic acid you do very short efforts maybe 30 second efforts with a minute recovery and you do that four times in a row so sprint for 30 seconds rest for 60 sprint for 30 rest for 60 four times and then you would just collapse off the bike and lie in a kind of fetal position for usually about 15 minutes and as you're lying there your your, your body feels like you know something's wrong here I shouldn't be feeling this bad I'm never doing this again you know I'm, I'm, I'm clearly ill I'm gonna have a, a day off and then you get out to that sort of 15 minutes and you pop out and you feel fine you go right okay let's do another set and you just do it again and again and yeah there were some days where you'd, you'd come out of the, the training session in the lab just you and the coach no one watching you no crowds no no nobody has witnessed any of it but you would feel almost as elated as some days when you've won other races just because you'd made a, a progression of five watts or 10 watts over your, your personal best. So it was always, everything was measurable. You, you, there was nowhere to hide. You couldn't just sort of come in and go, yeah, I gave it everything today. And you go, well, hang on a minute, let's look at the data. You didn't. No, you didn't. So yeah, it's, it's, there's parts of my career I really miss, but that definitely isn't, isn't one of them. I mean, it's, yeah, a lot of pain. So it's the, obviously the, the fitness, there's a, we've got a question here um, from uh, Matt uh, Stelmacher. Um, and it's sort of, it's kind of related to this. And it's, he's, he's asking what the key skill is that you've been able to bring from cycling into long distance endur endurance racing. And I, I'm guessing it's more the Kieran in mm -hmm. terms of the actual yep. racing with other people. Yeah. The biggest thing is the ability to focus and the ability to block out distractions. So it's exactly the same, um, you know, like in the Kieran or the Kilo at the start. If you start dwelling on what happens if I win, what happens if I lose, he's looking he's looking like it's going to be fast today or, you know, the conditions or the crowd or as soon as you're looking at things that have absolutely no bearing on your own performance, it's taking your, your mental concentration away from that. So in the car, if I'm coming towards a corner, coming towards Porsche curves at Le Mans at night, thinking I'm doing 140 miles an hour here, you know, this is supposed to be just a lift and turn in. That wall looks pretty close. You know, if I get this wrong, oh, there might be oil here. What happens if I hit, you know, if I hit the wall, it'd be disaster. As soon as you dwell on the things that could go wrong, it's, it kind of it massively increases your chance of doing that. So, you know, even, even in mountain biking, if you're going down a hill, the key thing is always to look exactly where you want to go. You don't look at the things you're trying to avoid. Which is the same in motor racing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So you, you, you focus on the line, you, you try and increase your vision, you try and look through the corner, um, and these are the things that I knew from cycling that I, I passed across to motorsport, but they're completely different skills. So, you know, it's you come into it and you have the competitive instinct, you have the desire to go fast, you have the desire to win, but, yeah, you learn very quickly that it's going to be, a, you know, you're starting at the very, very bottom level. Um, but that's part of what drew me to it. I quite enjoyed the thought of a new challenge that every time I get in the car, I'm going to be significantly better. Whereas on the bike, you know, you were spending a whole year or four year cycle trying to improve maybe half a tenth of a second. You know, the margins were so small, you were so close to the top level that you didn't have the headroom to improve. But in the car, I've got, got a long way to improve, which is, which is good. And did you, were you surprised by the sort of the physicality of racing, because I, I, for for lots of people, and lots of my friends always ask, why do racing drivers have to be so fit? Because they ultimately sit in a car and they turn it. It's. I think it depends on the type of car. I think it depends on your level. So, 
you could get somebody who has huge amount of experience and skill and they could go around without you know barely raising their heart rate and barely breaking a sweat but for me I just stepped off being a you know a full-time professional athlete at the Olympic level and I would jump into a car and I would come out the car just exhausted sweating and, and completely shattered but the, the the fatigue wasn't coming from the physical effort of using your muscles to turn the steering wheel or apply the brake. It was the concentration. It was the stress. It was your brain was working at full capacity, just trying to deal with all this information. And you, you get out the car and you're you're exhausted. But I think the more skillful you are, the more you can do stuff automatically, the more natural it is to you. If you've been driving carts since you were five and you're now, you know, in your teens or 20s and you're a pro driver, you do it, you know, you're an autopilot autopilot when you're doing the racing and you're using your brain to think about strategy or think ahead or deal with other things um so the physical side until you get up to the cars have a lot of downforce it's not that physically physically hard but it's hugely hard in terms of your concentration emotions everything you come out of the car and you're 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 shattered it's interesting what you were saying about the focus though and obviously as as an olympian you have that app that ability to to focus absolutely on something and i was i was doing a little bit of kind of digging around in terms of um, you're obviously doing Le Mans and things like that. Uh, so you were the first summer Olympian to compete at Le Mans, but you were actually the ninth former Olympian really? competing really? at Le Mans and the second Olympian champion to do so. Wow. So is it mainly winter sports? It's winter sports, the skiing that seems yeah. to translate That's interesting. to motor racing. Yeah. So, but there's obviously there's, there's something there mm. coming from the Olympics to, to motor racing. I guess it's... You know, you have athletes who have focused on one one thing, and they're incredibly driven, and they have the desire to aim towards a goal and work towards something, and then they retire, and then it's this feeling of what next? And you can have other focuses, and it's good to have a bit of variety and a bit of just a bit of balance in your life when you you've gone from doing one thing to the nth degree. You know, it's nice to have a, a more of a normal life, but you do miss that that challenge and and that focus. And motorsport, I think it's 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 high up on the list because it's just a fun thing to do and it's an opportunity that if you get the chance to do it you, you want to grab it with, with both hands but I think you could see why skiers or bobsleigh guys or anybody that's involved in a high speed um, highly skillful sport that, that needs to, to think ahead and plan ahead the translation into motorsport would be um, pretty good yeah so just before we kind of move on to the motorsport um, side of it I wanted to talk about 2012 obviously the the london olympics uh, it's kind of in i suppose in some sense it's a dream come true for you having the, the olympics in london you retired the, the following year so i guess you always knew this was your your final order. yeah I, I ideally i would love to go on to to glasgow for the commonwealth games in 2014 but i think my body had just about had enough um of all those nasty sessions in the lab and everything else it was yeah I, in many ways looking back now you, you you kind of gloss over the the tough times um so in 2008 it was in a fantastic games i got three gold medals in beijing and it was you know just a, a very significant moment in my career but then shortly afterwards when i came back into training um went to the first race after the olympics and i crashed and, and really damaged my hip quite badly and i was off the bike for 10 weeks missed the world championships and then from then on it was quite a struggle um just to actually get to London to be selected because only one rider per nation per event was allowed. They changed the rules. That was slightly in light of how well Britain was doing. Yeah, which, I mean... If, if you told everyone 20 years before that that was going to happen. <laughs> it, I mean, we weren't even, you know, a B or a C grade nation in Britain. We were we were just, you know, the bottom of the, 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 the pile, basically, back in the day. And then to think that within 15 years we'd managed to become such a dominant nation that the... The powers that be didn't want us to, to be winning gold and silver in each event. They wanted just one person. But if you imagine in athletics saying, well, one Jamaican, one American, you know, you're not allowed to have more than one per nation, there would be an outcry because you want the best athletes in the world to be at the Olympic Games. Um, so they changed, this, they, they changed it after London, which didn't really help me. But for London, it meant that, you know, I had a teammate in Jason Kenny who was the quickest in the world. The two of us were kind of one and two in the world in the two individual events. Um, so the choice had to be made, do, do we you know, divide and conquer or does one person get the chance to do both events? And in the end, it was the right choice, I think. You know, I'd love to have defended all three titles, but Jason was going better than me in the sprint. I was going better than him in the Kieran. And together we joined forces with Philip Hines and we won the team sprint. So I got two gold medals, Jason got two and Phil got his one in the team sprint. Um, but it was, yeah, it was the, the dream ending. And I think that Athens 
up until that point was the most dramatic night. It was the you know the first time you become Olympic champion. Everything about that night was so special. I never thought anything could compare to it. But the final night, winning the Kieran, it was the last event of the track program. So everybody had sort of gathered in the track centre to watch it. The stands were full. It was by the nature of the event. It's a very unpredictable um, thing to win. And yeah, it, I almost it was like within inches of of all being over. The German rider, my main rival, Max Levy, he almost passed me with a half lap to go. And if he just cleared my front wheel, he could have come down and shut the door. But I just managed to hang on, prevent that overlap or keep that overlap there. And then through the last corner, held the line on the inside and came past him. And the roar, I mean, the noise that night, I'll never forget that. Just, you know, you talk about the, the, the effect of a home crowd. It was something special. And then I won the gold medal, standing behind the podium, waiting for the presentation. Normally, once I got on and you hear the anthems, then the little tear comes out. I couldn't, I couldn't even hold it in before I got onto the podium. I was in an absolute mess because um, I, I was picking out faces in the crowd. I could see, you know, obviously, my coaches and the support team. But then you see other guys that, you know, your rivals, their their coaches, you see friends and family in the stand, you see people that have been there since the very beginning. And if it, I, I guess I had this moment to sort of flashback through my whole career, realising this is the last moment I'm going to step on the, the podium at the Olympic Games. I thought back to Sydney in 2000 when I got a silver medal with the team. At the time, thinking of, if this is all I ever get in my career, I'll be happy. Um, so, yeah, to finish with six golds and a silver, and just to be so grateful I'd had this this fantastic career, so many great memories, it was it was the perfect send-off. And it was having that home Olympics that really inspired me for the last two or three years, which were very tough to get to the Games, to keep working, just to experience that, that moment. I, d I remember watching that race standing up in front of the TV. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, there's no way, there's no, one was, no one was sitting down in the room. But there was, there was that the wonderful thing about the British, the the London Olympics was just this f amazing feeling of goodwill, and I was in the I was in the Olympic Village a couple of times to watch some of the sports, and it was just an amazing atmosphere, mm. and it was yeah. I mean, what what a what a way to sign out. It's just it's kind of sad because you think well, you know that was seven years ago, and you think look at our country now, and look at the country then. <laughs> we were so united, and it was such a feeling of do you know what? Look at what we can achieve, and wow, isn't this great? And there were so many there were so many doubters leading into the games. The transport's going to be terrible. The weather's going to be awful. We're not going to win any medals. It's going to be a disaster. And almost from the moment of the opening, you know, the start of the opening ceremony, when it all kicked off, and everybody sat back and got, thought, oh, this, this, was is, this is good. really good. And <laughs> wow, you know, it's not rained yet. And look at all the crowds. And and it was just a wonderful time. People were talking on the tube. And, you know, I used to open the curtains on the balcony. We were on the edge of the village. We had a really nice spot, top floor. And it looked across onto the main stadium. And every morning you'd open your curtains and you see these tens of thousands of people flooding into Olympic Park. And it was just, you know, trying to soak it in and realise, you know what, this is this is a temporary thing. This this is for two weeks, three weeks. You know, this is something you'll remember for the rest of your life. And yeah, it was it was a magical time. And I even getting to carry the flag in for the opening ceremony myself. I remember thinking at the time, if, if this is all I get from these games, if I don't win a medal, the last four years of hard work has been worth it to get to this point because... When you walk in and you hear David Bowie heroes and the crowd goes wild and you realise that you're leading in the nation at the home Olympic Games, you know, these are these are the things that when you're growing up you you just assume will happen to someone else. You never think it's gonna happen to you. So yeah, it was it was a magical time and it is it is sad when you think that, you know, in such a short space of time the country's so divided and there's so many things that you know, you turn the news on and you think, oh God, you know, can it get any worse? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, let's have another Olympic yeah. game, shall we? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, That'll sort it yeah. out. Sport unites, sport yeah. unites. So moving on to motorsport, we were t you were saying how obviously the, the ability to focus was a huge help. Some of the kind of your racing tactics from the Kieran helped. Was there, was there something you struggled with when you first yeah. took a car on track? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think the biggest thing was understanding that, you know, there are so many more variables certainly when I started racing, it was about, you, you can't control the end result. You know, it doesn't matter how well prepared you are or the car is. There's so many things that can go right or go wrong. The fact that cars just break and think, you know, components break out of nowhere and it could be on the last lap. But look at Toyota in, you know, at Le Mans. It's just, you know, to get that far in a 24-hour race. And it's not just about the 24-hour race. It's about the whole year or sometimes five, six years building up to that moment of developing the car, getting the team together, everything that goes towards um, such a huge, huge challenge, and it can go wrong any time, at any stage, and and it's understanding that and realizing that you, 
you can't focus on the end result. Again, bringing it back to cycling, focus on the process of what you need to do, and understanding that yeah, it's it's a, don't worry about the end result. It'll take care of itself. Winning or losing, it's almost it's not irrelevant. That's the aim is to win, but the the aim is to go out there personally and do the best job you can. Um, but in terms of driving on track, I think it was initially very committed, overly committed and making lots of mistakes and I was encouraged to do that by, I had Andy Wallace who was my um, instructor at Radical and Roger Green and they were saying, yeah, if you're not spinning, you're not trying hard enough to keep going and and then it's getting to the point where you realise actually... When you're upside down in the barrier. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> Andy, you're sacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he was great. He used to sit with me in the passenger seat and, you know, we would, you know, we had a spin at Bedford and he said, oh, don't worry, it's a great place, there's nothing to hit. But the one place there is a wall, there's a kind of pit wall coming down the back straight, uh, not pit wall, just a, a tire wall. And I touched the white line on braking and it was a little bit damp still and I spun the car and it was like, you know, tire wall, grass, tire wall, grass. <laughs> spun it, missed the wall, came to a stop and he just turned to me and said, well, that was exciting. <laughs> you did very well, you put your foot on the clutch, you know, and I was like, oh, my heart, it was like about 180, I was like, oh, God. But yeah, he's, you know, he was, he's a legend, Andy, but um, yeah, he was really great help in the early days. And just, I guess, in a car like the Radical SR1, it's actually not got a lot of downforce. A lot of people assume they're similar to the, the SR3 or the SR8. Very low grip, so the car's moving around, so you do learn a lot about um, the dynamics of the car and about your inputs and how they affect that. But it was, I just find it so exciting, and, and I love the speed, and I love the focus, and I love the fact that, like cycling, when, when I was in the car on track, nothing else in the world was existing apart from the next breaking point, the next apex. You know, it was just... You, you immerse yourself in this experience and you finish and you kind of it's almost like you've come up for air you're like oh yeah there's something else happening in the world today it's not just about driving a car on a track it's um yeah it's a, it was a fantastic experience so when when did you when you started were you thinking right i'm gonna see if i could get lamont to, to lamont we'll see how it goes or was that something that came later do you was it just some fun to start well, it, with? it was just for just for the sake of doing it and it was filming a documentary about Colin mccray um which that was excellent, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that it, really, really I, it was a real privilege to do it and quite quite difficult to do it as well because, you know, you're going in to meet his family who, you know, have since Colin's accident, they, you know, they didn't really want to speak to the media too much, understandably, and, but they welcomed me in and, you know, it's just so much fun with Jimmy, you know, all the adventures. He's still a hooligan at heart and taking me out and, and just, you know, embracing, you know, bringing me in and, sh you know, welcoming me to the family and just, yeah, they were they were fantastic. But, the first day, I remember going to the filming up at the farm and just thinking, "This is this is tricky because, you know, they're wel welcoming a film crew into their their home and they're going to talk about something that's still very very raw." Um, but it was yeah a privilege to do. So it was it was filming that documentary that we did a little scene of me out on the track at Alton Park in my own track car in the Lotus Two Eleven and um, Roger Green came down. He was at the time. I just finished working at Evo and he was um, working for Radical and I was a big fan of Evo and reading, you know, obviously motorsport as well. well of course, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there are no other, <laughs> there are no other <laughs> magazines. And um, yeah, and I went over and ch ch chatted to Roger and he said, you know, have you thought about racing? And he, I said, well, not really because, you know, I, mean, I have no idea how you get into it. Um, he said, well, we can get you out in a car, you know, do some testing and if you like it, we can get you through your arts test and, and there's a, a novice race series starting next year we're going to run and we'd love to put you in a car for that. So it all it all spiraled from from that documentary about Colin. So um, yeah, at that point, I think it was when we were testing, and Andy, you know, I was introduced to Andy, and they said, well, you know, if you keep on this, you could Le Mans is a, a an achievable goal, you know, because you can go there as an amateur driver, and I just dismissed that. I thought, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll stick with the the, the SR1 to start off with, and then it was in 2015 when I was working with Nissan as part of their Olympic partnership, um, and they said, you know. We'll have a look at you, see what you're like in the car. And when they, we did a test, they said, well, let's make the, the end goal Le Mans. You know, got three years to get there. And they were, you know, amazing at, at bringing through gamers through to, you know, the highest level professional drivers. So they had a chance, I had a chance to sort of piggyback that program, the GT Academy. Um, and it was, yeah, just this pipe dream initially. And as the time went on and, the, you know, they progressed through the ranks, did British GT, European Le Mans series, and then it was, you know, we're going to do Le Mans next year. And that was when I got the phone call to say it's on and we've got the team and we've got the got the car. It was, it suddenly sort of dawned on me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. This is, this is going to be me out there. So, um, yeah, really, really exciting. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And do, obviously, you're very used to walking into stadiums and performing in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people. You knew about Le Mans, you're obviously a fan of it and things like that. But I think a lot of drivers, even sort of professional racing drivers who have raced from the age of six, um, still find it amazing when you arrive there and the enormity of it. And it's not so much the place, it's the whole week that goes yes. with it. Was that Absolutely. the same with you? Even with 100%. And it was the best thing I did was go there the year before and they allowed LMP3 cars to test on the official test day, which they hadn't before. So I got to drive. I mean, it was absolutely atrocious day that was just rained nonstop the whole time. But to get on the track and so to all experience those, it. All, those, all that time at Meadowbank. Yeah, that's exactly. What it, that's, exactly. That's what it prepared I'm, you I'm for. I'm like a rain magnet. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it was, it, before you even get there, you're driving down and then you see, you see your first sign for Le Mans and you suddenly go, wow, you know, and the road signs, just the, it's just so many things that bring the emotion and, and just um the romance to the behind the event and, and you get there and then you recognize all these things you've seen on tv and i've been before you know as a fan to watch two or three times before and to be arriving there with a view to actually getting in the car and getting on the track is a very different feeling to, to arrive in there as a fan but um yeah i remember going out and just pulling out the pit lane and it, you know even as a kid with a skeletric set with a dunlop bridge and all the things that you you know like, wow i'm going under the dunlop bridge for the first time but it, for me it was heading down the Mausanne Street the first time and you're sitting there pinned flat to the floor just thinking here we go this is it We're on. I'm on the Mausanne Street and then before you know it you see these huge lights behind you and it's Mark Webber and an LMP1 just going <laughs> <laughs> God almighty um, but yeah it was everything about Le Mans was special and you know and there were so many stages to it as well it wasn't like the, the, the novelty wears off The you know for me one of the best points was the nighttime stint the first night stint I went out on and you pull out the pits in the dark and head down, and that that was just the one of the highlights. Without doubt, thinking this is you know one of the moments of of my life. This is something I'll, I'll always remember, and what a privilege as well because so many people want to do it, and not not just your average fan who who goes there and says, "I wonder what it'd be like to be in the track," but you know really high level professional drivers who have dedicated their lives to this profession, and they still haven't had the opportunity to do it. So here's me some numpty that used to ride bikes, you know, getting this chance to go out in an LMP2 car. I didn't, you know, I wanted to do the whole opportunity justice and not just turn up and take it lightly. So, yeah, for all the people that, that were wanting to be, I would love to be in my shoes, I wanted to do the best job I could. And what what was the kind of, from when you first stepped into a car, in terms of the SR1 and then in sort of um, race capacity, through to Le Mans and things that you've done since, What's been the feedback like from the sort of motorsport community? Was it was, were they a bit difficult to start with? Or no, I, I think they were. I was really warmly welcomed. I think I, I genuinely think that the, the motorsport community love it when people come in from other you know areas because it, it reaches a wider audience and people will take an interest in motorsport that maybe hadn't before and appreciate how hard it is and, and how how amazing it is and you know that. I guess most people, if they're not into motorsport, they'll be aware of motorsport through F1. You know, every weekend through the summer, they'll see F1 on the telly, and they'll see these onboard shots of just the steering wheel, and then turn, and the car goes that way, and straight, and turn. And you think, well, I drive a car every day. I go to drop the kids off at school. I can drive, so I could pretty much do what Lewis Hamilton does. And they have no no concept of of, of just the nuances, the skill, the, the 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 fact the cars are on the you know whether it's a Formula One car or, you know, caterums or whatever, any kind of championship in between. Every driver is pushing to the limit on every part of the circuit and it's it's such a such a challenge and so exciting and, and it, I just think TV doesn't ever quite do it justice. Um, so 
if you can get out there and spread the word and talk about it and people think, well, he seems quite passionate about this, it must be quite exciting, then hopefully you're doing doing a very small job to, to, to sort of spread the word. And what, you know, we were talking earlier about your, you know, your kilo races, a minute, a maximum effort. A 24-hour race in a car is a hugely different thing and I suppose Nissan would have kind of got you prepared for that. Was there anything that you found surprising in that process in terms of the, the leap I, to the 24-hour I, th- I think... It was about trying to just break it into segments. So understanding that you don't think about it as a 24-hour race. You think, right, okay, I'm going to do, we're starting off with a double stint at 5 o'clock and then you're going to be back in the car at 11 o'clock or, you know, and that's going to be a triple stint. Therefore, you know, that's going to be roughly X number of laps. Um, and you, during that time, you know, it, it's it's never thinking too far ahead. So you're never thinking, oh my God, I've been in the car for five minutes and I'm just, you know, I'm absolutely at capacity here. I can't deal with this. It's so intense. You know, you, you just think about, your, it's almost like a hurdles race. You don't think about the hurdle you've just gone over or the one that's five or six down the line. It's just, what's next? What am I doing next? Right, over this, onto the next one. And you just, it's just like a conveyor belt, one by one, minute by minute, lap by lap. And then before you know it, you get the call box this lap and you're coming in and you're like, it passed in the blink of an eye. You know, a two and a half hour stint can just go like that, which which seems crazy. But the key to it, I guess, is relaxing at the points that you can relax on. And Le Mans actually probably a less physical circuit than, than many. For a 24 hour race, you've got these, it's almost like flurries of activity and then recover and then flurries of activity and recover. But in that time, you have to keep an eye on all the different dials and make sure everything's operating okay in the car. You've got to communicate with your, your engineer. You've got to be super aware about what's happening around you because you know we've seen so many accidents at Le Mans with the huge speed differentials between the, the categories so when you're going along at night or even in the daytime and you see the, the big bright white lights of the LMP1 coming the, the, up behind the blinding you, lights, they are blinding lights yeah so you can't even you can't even look at them so as soon as you see your, your, your mirrors light up you don't look in the mirror you, the road ahead lights up so you know they're coming and you hold your line and it's just like you kind of almost shut your eyes and hold your breath but the, the, the worst moment for me the first time was when I assumed it was just two. I could see there was it was more than one set of lights. I thought, right, there's two coming up behind. And the one went past, and the second one went past. And I almost came back on the racing line, and there was a third. And it was just, and then I thought, you know, that was, it wasn't close in terms of I didn't actually make the move, but it was close enough for me. I was about to make that move. So it was a great lesson of, right, you, you do not do that until you're 100% sure. Um, you know, it's just... Doesn't bear thinking about um, if you get it wrong there. And apart from anything else, imagine being the person that ended the hopes of one of the, the Porsches or the Audis or the. Well, it's, it's happened many Toyotas. times. Yeah, exactly. So um, you didn't want. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, so it was. Yeah, it, it's. I guess it, you just don't think too far ahead. You think about one lap at a time, one one breaking point at a time, and then before you know it, you're you're called in, and that's the end of your stint. And do, do you have an engineer on the radio though saying the lead battle's coming up behind you? Does, do yeah. you get a bit of feedback on that? Yeah, obviously you do. On a, on, a, on a bicycle, you absolutely did not. Some have. some engineers and some teams are are better at that than others. Um, you know, some communicate really well, and even down to the simplicity of, of you know at Le Mans, the radio didn't work that well. So you had sections of the track where you could communicate and sections where you couldn't. This is the cutting edge of motorsport. Exactly. Well, yeah, they were all, we had all sorts of problems, and so on. The, my first stint, I think, on the second lap coming into the Mozan corner at the end of the, the straight. Um, I locked up and a really bad lock up on the front right, really bad flat spot to the point where you know you, you can't see out the windscreen that it's vibrating so badly and I'm thinking and every time you get to a breaking point it locks up on the same bit makes it worse, worse and you're just con- absolutely paranoid that I was going to go through the, the canvas and I was going to get a puncture and it was you know going to be off at the start of the race so I, I said you know I've got a flat spot really bad, I've got to come in but I could have had to wait till we came back into the, the, the zone that I could actually communicate and the engineer was saying, well, you know, you've, you've cocked the tires up. You have to wait and see, you know, we're, we're discussing. And it turns out they didn't have any tires, hot tires ready to go. So they're having, and I watched the documentary afterwards where there was a documentary about the whole process of doing them on. And there's this <laughs> sort of comedy scene where you've got the, the head chief mechanic and the head engineer shouting at each other. <laughs> Where's the tire? We haven't got any tires. What cold ones? Well, you should have them. Just change one tire. They do that in Formula One. No, they don't. Yes, they do. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, am I coming in or not? And then it's like, but when when you push the button, if they're talking, then you can't talk. You basically, I push the button to talk, and you can hear that they're mm-hmm. discussing back and forth. So I couldn't say, am I coming in? Am I? It was this really <laughs> stressful. Like, for the first stint, it was the worst, worst possible start. Eventually, I came in, and they changed all four tires, and they were cold. And I pulled out the pit lane 
off the limiter, foot down, and the car steps sideways. And, I said, Whoa! and then <laughs> two seconds later, Chris, your, your tires are cold, so be careful. I was like, yep, thank you. Just spotted that. <laughs> so it got better from there, but that was that was quite a quite a start to to my first experience at Le Mans, yeah. Baptism of fire. I, yes. do, well, I, have to say, I, I would like to say I've had a very similar experience, but my only 24-hour race was the Citroen 2CV one oh, at Snetterton. Awesome, awesome. Um, uh, and uh, so really no insight at all into Le Mans. But, that's, but yeah, it but lasted for the same amount of time. Same, the thing is, I don't think it matters what the car is or what the division is. It's the same, the same camaraderie, the same experience, the same build-up. And did, did you finish the race? Yeah, we'd, so interestingly, uh, I went to bed at kind of 11, and I was supposed to be back in the car at sort of 5, 6 in the morning, but I got woken up at 1 in the morning sleeping in a tent in the paddock yeah. um, because one of the drivers couldn't actually see it at night in the rain, uh, which, <laughs> which only became apparent at sort of one in the morning. Oh, so I had to get back in the car. But it's it great. Was. Watching sunrise, and think, I mean, yeah. it's just, there's something about a 24-hour race mm. that's very, very magical. But, exactly. Um, there's, did you get emotional at the end when you crossed the line? Did you feel you'd really well, achieved something? Yeah, I did. But with Citroen 2CVs, I know they've got lots of fans, but yeah. the Wellington Strait at Snatterton is, is very... <laughs> Very long. You can send an email, and, yeah. <laughs> and you can look over to, to someone next to you to give them a wave. Um, so it's, it's a different form of racing, and mm. um, but it was a it was a wonderful experience, and mm. to get through it mm-hmm. was was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was really, really good. Awesome. Um, so it's kind of fast forwarding a bit to, to what you're doing now. Um, you've d- you've done so much in motorsport. It's it's kind of it's, it's quite amazing actually. It's, it's just really in six short years. Um, have you tested a Formula E car? Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if you can call it a test. I did a couple of laps at Rome this year. So, um, yeah, I'm doing a series of, sort of, basically, it's me going in and trying different forms of motorsport. Um, it's a great way to try lots of different forms well, of motorsport. It's a great excuse, isn't it? It's kind of, how, how do I get a chance to drive all these cars that I really want to drive? We could pretend that we're making a, we are making a real TV series, honest. Um, but, yeah, basically, I go in there. So, it's there's um, World Rallycross, Formula E, Monster Trucks, which was insane. Um doing some drifting, doing Gymkhana and Porsche Super Cup. Um, so all these different forms, meeting different people who have the best jobs in the world um, as racing drivers and trying their cars out. So yeah, I, the, the rally, I mean, the, the, the tricky thing is that you, you have maybe one test day, in some cases, not, no preparation, you go straight in and you just do it. So you've got to really learn quickly and on your feet, but you're not going to complain when you get the chance to drive. I mean, I, I did one test day at Pembury and then I was in at the top end in the supercar category at the World Rallycross against, you know, the Timmy Hansen, Kevin Hansen, Marcus Grunholm's son, you know, these the, the best guys in the world. Um, and you're sitting on the start line doing your little burnout before you get up there, you know, handbrake on, 600 horsepower, bouncing off the limiter. And there's like five of you looking, six of you looking across thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Handbrake off, off you go. And it was, yeah, that was, I think the Rallycross um, experience has got to be up there with anything I've done in motorsport. It was absolutely brilliant and such a warm friendly paddock as well I mean everywhere motorsport it's always friendly but these guys were just really glad to have someone in and were interested in what I was doing and you know yeah the team with Ollie Bennett's team um, they were fantastic too so yeah it was a great experience You're a very humble man for sort of people listening and watching as the Super Cup which is 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 widely regarded as one of the most competitive and quite a niche championship. You need to know what you're doing. You you know you performed really well in it. Well, um, thank you. Oh, that was yeah. It was again. You know, I spoke to Chris Harris because he did it last year, and you know he said, "Look, mate, you're going to be at the back end of things. Don't worry about that. It's tough. The guy, you know, these are pro drivers. The cars are tricky, tricky things to handle. Um, no ABS, no traction, and it's all about the braking, and it's easy to lock up." So he kind of he put the willies up me a little bit at the start, like, but Cheers, Chris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but it was it was great because you, you do go in there with very low expectations, and they have the what they call the VIP car. They have different sort of guests in usually once a year to drive it, and it was there was a great team, really professional. I had a test at Silverstone, and I was about four seconds off the pace, and then by quali at Silverstone at the race, I was uh, two point seven off pole. So I was. Delighted with that, you know, for on a sort of two-minute lap, that was I was more than happy with that, and yeah, I think I finished. I beat about five or six guys, so I was I wasn't last, but um, it was more just getting around and driving relatively well for my standard and not making any mistakes. That was the key thing. I didn't want to be spinning off and causing a red flag. On the British Grand Prix in weekend, front of, yeah, exactly. When you've got full stands, most people remember me for going into the hay bales at Goodwood, so they go, "Oh, here's this muppet again," you know. So I, I didn't want to do anything stupid. So it was just about trying to be. Um, as clinical and, and clean and have a, a, a good race which which I did for me 
So I think you meant you described that as another sort of bucket list item ticked. Um, you've done them all, you do all these amazing things you're doing for the series. Are there things out there that you haven't done that you want to do, or you, do you want yeah. to go back to Le Mans? I'd, oh, I'd love to go back to Le Mans because you learn so much and, and you feel like you've barely scratched the surface. I thought I might have done it and then tick the, tick the box and then I can move on, but it, it really... Got the bug. I got the bug. And you, you, you learn so much that you want to apply all the things that you learned in that, that experience. But on top of Le Mans, Bathurst 12-hour, Nürburgring 24, um, mm. I'd love to do some more rally cross. I mean, that was just a taster for that. It really got me hooked. Um, I guess it, just any opportunity. And, and the key thing that I've learned, you know, the weekend I was racing um, at Spa in the British GT in a Mustang GT4, Multimatic, you know, top level pro team, really amazing guys. And at the same time, I was doing the, the Caterham 420 championship, on, you know, basically jumping at one car into the next. And you would assume that, well, you know, you've got the these, you know, top level teams and then you've got this sort of 30 grand a year championship which is just a club level racing but you know the, the experience is just as intense and just as fun in the caterums as it is in gts so the key thing is i think that it doesn't matter what level you're you're racing at the you know talking about the citroen 2 cvs i'll bet that's pretty intense when you're in a battle and you're you know if you're fighting for the lead and you're bum drafting down yeah, the back, exactly. back straight exactly it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what you do you know I, I honestly think that you know as long as you've got team of people around you that care about it and are, you're all in it together and you're having fun you know you, you can get so much in motorsport at any level so it's not just about the big ones of course i'd love to do all these iconic races but um just any opportunities you know i'm doing the spa six hour in a lotus land later on this year um i'm going to portimao doing a couple of races out there i've got spa this weekend again in a 911 gt2 rs club sport which has got oh, your life is so, so terrible so, 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 <laughs> rubbing it in sorry yeah so yeah I'm, I'm i'm very lucky that i get these opportunities um so when i get them you want to do them justice mm. So just quickly, tell me a little bit about the Mustang, because it's, mm. it's a bit different, it's yep. quite, quite new, yeah. um, and you're doing a few races in that. We, well, I just got two races, so I had um, Donington last month, and then Spa last weekend. It's GT4, it is, I guess, the strengths of the, the Mustang are, it's got really good high-speed aero, so through this uh, med medium and high-speed corners, it's very stable, you can really commit, it's got really good traction out of the slower corners. Straight line pace isn't as good as some of the other cars, so we struggled at Spa a little bit because of that. And the brakes, it's not quite as, you can't chuck it in quite as late as some of the other cars. It's quite a heavy car. But we did really well at Donington. Well, we won at Donington. Um, so there's two cars. There was the, the GT4 Silver Silver and the GT4 Pro-Am. And the, the GT4 Silver Silver, they won their category and they're leading the championship. And myself and Billy Johnson won the Pro-Am, which was a big surprise. Um, and then last weekend, I raced with Andy Priol. And his son, Seb, was racing in the Silver Silver car um, with Scott Maxwell. And we were both sixth in our relative classes. So it was a bit tougher. We weren't quite up there with the, the faster cars and the straight line, but just so much fun. You know, it really is. It's a great car to drive, great team. Um, and I learned a lot from, from Andy. But it was it was nice to be there that weekend because it was the first time that Andy and Seb had raced side by side ever. So to have your son, I, mean, I just can't imagine what it would be like for Callum's five just now. And I, I couldn't imagine if he'd been old so enough. It's going to start get, getting expensive soon. Yeah, well, I'll keep him on two wheels. It's much, much cheaper, I think, yeah. Now, um, sort of before we finish, anyone who follows you on Twitter um, will do one of the. This, I suppose there's two ways to do social media. Um, as you know, if you're if you're very well known, and that's to basically ignore most people and sort of just keep tweeting. But you're really interactive, and a lot of that is with Hoy bikes, which is a relatively new. It's a, well, it's, it's it's a new brand of bicycles. Yes, it? yeah, we set it up. Well, I started doing. Well, when I, I guess when I retired, the, the question was what next, and I, I had to have things I was passionate about to really get my teeth into and really get focused on. So I decided to pick a number of things to do rather than just one, you know, thing like with my, my cycling days. So motorsport was one, but to start my own business, to, to make my own brand of bike and to start a range. And it started out with a couple of adult bikes and then we expanded from there and then we started the kids range. And the, the adult bikes did, did okay, but the, the kids bikes have been so really well received and we've, we've gone relatively high, high end, very lightweight components lightweight frames to make the bikes as easy for the kids to ride as possible. And I guess now becoming a dad as well, you go through this phase of just the wonder of seeing your kids learn to ride their bike and it's so much fun. It reignites your passion for, for cycling. So yeah, we do, you know, any anyone that's got a high bike out there, if they're posting pictures of their kids out riding, you know, I'll if they send me a message, I'll send them a message back and it's it's just great to see because you see the smiles on their faces when they're out there that first time when they realise that their mum or dad aren't holding them under the saddle, they're actually pedalling by themselves and, and 
that 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 moment of freedom and excitement when you're pedaling on your own. And you and you've got your you know with with your children you've got your own um, test riders. Perfect. Ex well, exactly. I hope you and pay them very well. well yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, they get a free bike out of it. Oh, right, so, yeah, okay, yeah. I can't complain. Yeah, and a yeah, new bell, actually. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's like even like Callum. Um, so Callum was born prematurely. He was, you know, two pounds when he was born. He was 11 weeks early. Really tough start. And he's always been, you know, he's been on the catching up since day one. But physically now, he's, you know, as big or bigger than all his mates at the nursery. Um, developmentally as well, he's caught up. But he's always been a little bit. I guess shy and a bit more um, reserved, and he doesn't throw himself into things. And certainly, new sort of physical activities, he's always a bit kind of on the back foot. But his bite, he just seems to have picked it up. He absolutely loves it. And we went on holiday to Australia at the start of the year, and we went down to the beach, and there was a bike path that went all the way along the beach, just for miles and miles. And every sort of kilometer, there's a little play park. And we just went out one day. Sarah was walking the pram with Chloe, and me and Calm set off on the bikes. And we would just stop, have a go on the swings. Callum might as well, you know, not just me. And then um, <laughs> we'd go on from place to place. We went on, we did 5K up and 5K back. We did 10Ks and he's only four. And you, I'm not some sort of mad parent that's kind of <laughs> cracking the whip tail. He just absolutely loved it. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see kids enjoying themselves. And, you know, it's when you've created it, when you've designed the bikes and, and you know, you've had a big part of it and, and you see them having fun on them, it's, it's a cool thing. Well, what a wonderful note to end on. Chris, thank you so much for all your time. You know, after hearing just how much racing you're doing, it's amazing that you've spared an hour of your time. Um, thank you so much. It's been truly enlightening. Um, it really, really has. So thank you. Thank you very it's much. Been great. Cheers. And we'll see you all next month for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.